much, worship team, for leading us into the presence of the Lord this morning. It's a joy to be with you guys. Uh, I probably say this every time I come here from Weston, but they let me out once in a while, and it's great to be with you. What's amazing is I recognize a lot of you, but there are more and more faces that I don't recognize, and that's a good thing. And I don't think that means my memory's slipping, though some would say it probably is a little, but, but just to have so many folks coming here and hearing from God's Word week by week and singing praise together. So obviously I'm not Pastor Jeff. A uh, few things that are different about us. Uh, he's a, a Yankees fan, and unfortunately the Yankees, or no, fortunately the Yankees lost last night. Uh, I'm a Red Sox fan, so very glad to, hit, to have that happen. Uh, but Pastor Jeff will be back in the pulpit next week. Uh, he's been in Israel leading a tour, and, and currently he and Betty Ann are spending some time away and getting refreshed, and we look forward to having them back. Let me go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll dive in this morning. Father in heaven, it's a joy to be here together with my Highland Church family, and we want to want to ask that you would incline our hearts toward your testimonies this morning and not toward selfish gain. Please open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word today. Please unite our hearts to fear your name. And also, Father, would you satisfy us today with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. And as we open your word together, I pray that you would guard me, guard my heart, guard my lips. If I misspeak anything, I pray that we would not remember that. But what is from you, Lord, from your word here, I pray that that would penetrate deeply into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, former and the late President Ronald Reagan, as many of you know, was one time governor of California. And he tells a story about, as governor, he wanted to interact more with our neighbors south of the border, with Mexico. And he had a chance to go down to Mexico and, and give a speech. And he thought, okay, here's my chance to win these folks over more and more and want to be a good neighbor. And he worked hard on the speech. And as he's given his speech, it was a rousing speech. Um, he had put us all into it. And, and he was really a, a, a very good speaker. But the folks that were listening to the speech in Mexico were, were like very polite applause. Nothing really enthusiastic about it. Well, he goes on, he tries to stir it up a little bit more, and, and it just isn't working. And he finally sits down again to polite but unenthusiastic applause. And he sits down behind the podium, and the next guy gets up to speak, and, and this next guy is riveting. I mean, he's, he has the crowd in the palm of his hand, and as he's speaking, they're, they're cheering. He, he pauses just for a second, and the whole crowd erupts with applause and, and, and shouts and whistles and and, uh, and Governor Reagan's feeling a little chagrined here, but, but he thinks, you know, maybe I can kind of win a little face back if, if I become this guy's biggest cheerleader. So, so there's a pause, and Governor Reagan's the first one to start clapping and, and cheering, and, and he claps the longest and the loudest. And, and this goes on for a few minutes. Um, Governor Reagan just leading the cheers before the United States ambassador to Mexico uh, taps him on the shoulder and says, Governor Reagan, um, you might not want to clap as loud or, or be as enthusiastic. You see, this guy is translating your speech. And, okay. <laughs> kind of funny, right? It's, I mean, it's funny because it's self-effacing humor. But what if, what if Governor Reagan knew exactly what the guy was saying, knew that he was translating his own speech, um, and was like still the first to be cheering and clapping 
we would recoil against that sort of self-glorification. Maybe like the guy in the picture here, if, if he, uh, you know, that rubs us the wrong way when, when we're full of ourselves and, and, and we're trying to glorify ourselves. Um, what's interesting in Scripture, though, is that God glorifies himself, and he calls us to glorify him. And I don't know if you've ever struggled with that and wondered, isn't that selfish for God to do that? It's not. It's not. But, but did you ever wonder about that? I wondered about that. You know, I struggled with that. Not, it wasn't like the foremost struggle in my mind, but it kind of nagged back there sometimes. But, but this is what really helps. Think about this. What is the greatest thing that God could ever give us? Greatest thing ever. If he were to give us the best gift ever, what would that be? It would be himself. Because there's nothing greater than God. So, so it's right and appropriate for God to, to glorify himself because he made us so that he could share himself with us. He didn't, he didn't need us. But in his love and compassion and mercy and grace and kindness, he created us so that we could enjoy him so that he could give us the best gift ever, which is himself. If, if I give people myself, that's not the best thing ever, right? That's why it's wrong for people to glorify ourselves. But if I present God to you, <laughs> that's appropriate to bring glory and honor to him. Well, the greatest thing that we can do is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And, and conversely, the worst thing we can do is to not glorify God. And we're going to be in the book of Isaiah today. And if we had a theme that would kind of encapsulate the entire prophecy of Isaiah, it would probably be Isaiah 48.11. So I want to look at this theme verse before we bounce over to where we're going to be. But Isaiah 48.11 says, The Lord is speaking, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will not share his glory with anybody else. But that question, how should my name be profaned? It should not be. But the worst thing in the world is when the nations profane the name of the living God, when they do not give him glory. And what's even more heinous is when the people of God, the people that he has rescued and provided for and cared for and protected, when the people of God do not give God glory, that's even worse. Because if, what does that say to the nations when the people of God chase after idols? That says, you know what, nations of the world, our God is not enough. He's, he's good, but he's not good enough. I need something more. And when God's people do not glorify God with the way they live, that is exactly what they're proclaiming to the world. And they're profaning God's name. And Isaiah's, the 66 books of Isaiah are about God's glory and his judgment against the profaning of his name. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 today. We're going to start at verse 8. We're going to work our way through 10.4. And I want to just mention a couple things as we get started, just to keep in mind. As we're going through this passage, think about, first of all, the increasing sin of Israel that we're going to see. Secondly, Think about God's unrelenting wrath in the face of that sin. And sometimes I think another thing we recoil against is that phrase, the wrath of God. 
And I think we tend to recoil against that phrase because we know what our wrath is like. We know how we can fly off the handle, how our, our anger is not measured. We, we throw it out there and it's, it's, it really gets to be a mess. But God's wrath is different. It's severe, but it's measured and it's right because God is a just God. He's so, he's so just, in fact, that, that he has to punish sin. And consider this just briefly here before we get to our passage as well. Consider that you have a loved one who has been, who has encountered a horrific crime here in the community and, and they catch the guy that did it. And he goes to court, goes on trial. The jury is, has no doubt that he's guilty. And it's a very severe crime and your loved one is suffering and you suffer with your loved one. And when it comes time for sentencing, the judge says, you did a terrible thing, but, but just, just don't do it again. Just, just go, but don't do it again. Okay? If that person was the one who had hurt your loved one, you would hate that, right? I mean, that would be like the most unjust thing. And consider that God is such a God of justice that he, and he's so holy, and our sin is so heinous before him that just because he's just, he's a just and righteous judge, he must punish it. But his wrath is always measured. It's severe, but it's measured. So just keep that in mind, too, as we consider increasing sin and God's unrelenting wrath in the face of it. Here we go. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him, against Israel, and stirs up Israel's enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. And for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head. The prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. And for all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. They all roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. And for all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment 
in the ruin that will come from afar. To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. And for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And as we read through this passage, um, it's a discouraging passage. Increasing sin, unrelenting wrath of God. And we're going to have a kind of a discouraging message here for a little while, but we're going to wind up someplace amazing and beautiful. But I want to kind of walk through this passage with us today, this morning. Um, And it starts out back in verse 8, where God is disciplining Israel. He has sent a word against them. Jacob, Israel, interchangeable terms for the nation of Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. Um, Ephraim and Samaria are both part of the northern ten tribes of Israel. And what are they doing? They're speaking in their arrogance and pride of heart, right? And what's, what's happening here is God has already been bringing some, some judgment and some trouble to Israel for their sin, for their idol worship, for their profaning of the name of the Lord. And, and we see that because it says the bricks have fallen. And when you think of bricks that have fallen, we think about buildings and walls that are crumbling um, we also see in that passage that, that the sycamores have been cut down. And sycamore trees were, were abundant in Israel, so natural resources are being depleted. This is part of the judgment that God is bringing on his people. But what is their response? Are they turning to the Lord? No, in their pride and their arrogance, they're saying, yeah, the bricks have fallen, but we're going we're gonna to build with dressed stones. Dressed stones are way more beautiful than bricks. And yeah, yeah, the sycamore has been cut down, but we're going to put cedars in their place. Cedars are much more majestic, beautiful, and useful trees than sycamore trees are. And we, we just see this pride and arrogance that, that they will not yield. They will not repent of their sin and turn back to God. And we see that the Lord responds by raising up adversaries. Resin, adversaries of resin. Resin is a reference to the northern Assyrian Empire which was building up power during the 700s B.C. and in 722 B.C. would come and obliterate Israel. So there's this reference to to the Lord raising up these adversaries against Israel and then stirring up enemies on the right and the left, the Syrians and the Philistines. Perpetual problems to Israel are coming in and devouring them with open mouth. And I just picture a lion coming in and just destroying God's people. And this is God's response to the arrogance and pride of Israel. But I want us to think a minute too as we go here that that Israel is not the only folks that have ever struggled with arrogance and pride, right? I mean, we struggle with that too. When we live as though we don't need God, that is arrogance and pride. How many decisions do we make throughout our day without any thought whatsoever to God and, and what his thoughts are on what we're thinking and doing? Or what about prayerlessness? When we pray, we're depending on God for help. Pastor Jeff preached about that when, when we looked at the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, those who go to God for help. But when we're prayerless, we're really saying, don't really need God. I pretty much have everything I need and, and I'm fine. And that's arrogance and pride. Back to our text here we see the next step in this increasing sin of Israel. Um, 
we see that God does not relent. His hand is stretched out still. And we hear that four times in the passage. And why is that? Verse 13, the people wouldn't turn to him who struck him, who struck them, and they would not inquire of him. They're just going their own way. So God takes the next step and he cuts off the leadership of Israel, the head and the tail, the, the honored man, the elder, that's the head. The false prophet who breathes out lies is the tail. And why does God take out the leadership? Because verse 16 says, they've been leading the people astray. And those who are following them are just being swallowed up as well. It's so vicious, it's so wicked, in fact, that God typically has compassion on the young, on the widow, and the fatherless. But what do we notice here in this passage in verse 17? The Lord does not rejoice over their young men, has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. Why? Because they're all godless. Everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly for all this. His anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. And we just see this increasing sin in Israel. And as we think about leaders leading others astray, when we think about Christians leading people away from the living God, that's what Israel was doing. But that's something we need to think about as well because there are ways that we move people away from the living God, that we lead others astray. For instance, treating people with disrespect is a way to say, you know, what God says about that person doesn't really matter. That's leading people away from God. Or maybe parents who lie about a child's age to get them into the fair at a discounted rate or maybe for free. Or parents bickering in front of children or a critical spirit where parents may say to their child, I can't believe you would do such a thing as though we don't know our own hearts that when, we, when things don't go our way, we throw our temper tantrums too. Or what about this? What about gossiping or complaining? When we complain, what are we saying? We're saying, um, the God that I worship, he's, he's really not that good because he, he holds back on us. And, and he withholds good things from us. So, so we complain, we're dissatisfied with our circumstances. That points people away from the living God. And there's so many ways that we do this. All right, I want to continue on with our text here um, because it doesn't get any better. Remember, we'll wind up someplace good, but it's not getting better. Verse 18, wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. And um, maybe most of us have seen images recently of these wildfires that have been consuming the Napa Valley, parts of the Napa Valley in California, or in Montana this summer. These walls of flame that just, they devour everything in the path. And, and that's like the wickedness of Israel, God says. It's so wicked. It just consumes everything. There's no end to it. And God lets it go. Lets them go into their sin. He doesn't restrain them. He lets them go. His, and his judgment becomes a part of what they're doing because we see the immense self-destructive nature of sin here where it says, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, the people are like fuel for the fire, no one spares another. They slice meat on the right, are still hungry, devour on the left, are not satisfied. Just the insatiable desire of wickedness. Wickedness does not get better. It gets worse and worse, and it's like that fire that just devours everything. And it's so, it's so self-destructive, and sin is so irrational that we read this next phrase, 
Each devours his own arm. I mean, what a picture of self-destruction. How, how ridiculous is that to think that if I eat my own arm, that's going to be the best thing right now. But that's a picture of the irrationality of sin. Rationality, truth, reality, is, is everything as, as God sees it. And that's why we, we want to stay with the scripture, because we get God's view on everything. But sin is irrational. It leads to self-destruction, so much so that even, even the tribes of Israel are now turning against each other in their wickedness. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. The two sons of Joseph, their descendants, are, are going after each other. And together they turn against Judah, another one of the tribes of Israel. And because of all that, God's anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out against his people. And when you think about increasing, consuming wickedness and division among brothers, we can struggle with that too, can't we, brothers and sisters? What sin might you be pursuing? Are you respectful of each other, of your spouse, of your children? Do you pursue drunkenness or lust in in an unabated way or indulge in pornography or participate in sex outside of marriage? Are you dissatisfied? Do you complain frequently? Are you greedy? Are you a person who gossips about or slanders others? Do you cheat? Do you steal? Do you misuse the boss's time? What about me and all these things? Let's go on with our text. Chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice to rob the poor of my people of their right and widows and the fatherless become their prey. And here we see the misuse of the government where, what are they doing? The the Israelite government, the leadership, has been writing laws that oppress people. And that's the complete opposite of what government is supposed to do. One of the the primary roles of government is to restrain evil by promoting good. Or to promote good by restraining evil. And instead of restraining evil, instead of stopping those with, with wicked power who would oppress others, they're actually writing laws that encourage the oppression. And God will have none of it. He has had enough. And he says, what are you going to do on that day of punishment? And the ruin that's going to come from afar, another reference to the Assyrian nation coming to decimate Israel in a few years. Where are you going to go for help? Where will you leave your wealth? I mean, the wealth maybe that you've procured, he's saying to the, to the Israelites, that you've procured on maybe by oppressing other people. Nothing remains except this, to be a prisoner or to die. That's it. And for all that, God's anger would not turn away. His hand still stretched out about against his people. And we struggle with the same thing, don't we? In our nation, we write laws that oppress people. We write laws that, that say maybe to, to somebody who's very elderly and frail, maybe somebody who's hopelessly depressed and struggling. We have laws in some of our states that say, you know what, it's okay to help that person kill themselves. Or, or we have laws that, that say a baby that the Lord has knit together and placed in the womb of a mother, we have laws that say it's okay to, to 
to take the life of that little one. Okay, these are laws that we have written that oppress others as a nation. And how do we think about these as Christians? What do we do? What steps do we take? Are we more concerned about pursuing our own comfort, our own American dream, while 26,000 people, children, actually die every day around the world from curable diseases or from hunger? Do we love the American dream more than we love people? What is our mindset about these things? Okay, we can see how Israel would struggle because we have the same kind of hearts that the nation of Israel does. And we see that Israel has had a very severe sampling of God's wrath against sin. But that wrath that Israel was about to experience, had been experiencing, was going to experience from Assyria soon, pales in comparison with the wrath of God that is to come in the day of judgment. And scripture often depicts that wrath this way. Psalm 75 verse 8 says this. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So God's wrath pictured as this foaming wine that is destructive. Um, It's a picture of the tortures of hell forever to swallow the wrath of God. And I told you this was going to be discouraging. Got a little more to throw out here to you in terms of discouragement. But again, we're going to wind up in a great place. Because like Israel, we're in danger of increasing sin and unrelenting wrath as human beings. There's a tremendous danger that comes with blindly pursuing sin. And and one of the things, just as my fellow Highlanders, that I just want us to think about is um, what sins are we pursuing? Are Are there things that we do Because sometimes as Christians, we can get into a mindset that says, you know what, I'm pursuing this, but I don't really care right now. Um, What I'll do is I'll repent later on. Um, I'm just going to have my fun now, repent later. But, But that, again, is the irrationality of sin. Because what's reality? Reality is that you and I don't have the power in and of ourselves to turn from our sin. If God is not doing something in our hearts... Because we read in John 16 that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. So if the Holy Spirit is not pursuing me, I'm not going to run away from my sin. I'm going to keep running toward it. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And, and John Piper tells a story. And I, it's my, I, I just want to encourage us as Christians to, to run, not even linger around the gates of sin. Because the story that Piper tells, I think, illustrates this very well. And he, he tells a story about a buzzard in the frozen winter time, kind of soaring around the, the tundra high above. And he sees this river that's flowing down through the frozen wilderness. And on the river is an ice flow. And on the ice flow is a carcass, a dead carcass of an animal. And the buzzard thinks to himself, hmm, dinner. So. He thinks, I know what I'll do. I'm just going to swoop down there and, and enjoy a meal. But as he's, as he's diving down, he sees that the water is getting rougher. Um, it starts out smooth, but it gets really, really rough. And then there's this massive waterfall that plunges into the abyss. And, and so he thinks to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll just enjoy the meal as long as I can. And then just before I go over the abyss, I'll 
fly away. Good plan. So he goes down, he's enjoying this carcass, this meal, and, and he sees, looks up and he sees that the water's getting a little rougher, uh, but he's like, you know, just a little longer, a little longer, I think I'll be okay. And finally, just as the ice flow is about to pitch over the falls, he comes to and he, and he sees it and he goes to fly away, but his talons have frozen into the ice. And, and down he goes. And, and it's this picture of what happens when we pursue sin. We're not going to someday later say, oh, I don't want to pursue that anymore. We get so caught up in the pursuit of it. It's so deceptive, it captures us. And, and we become people who are in danger of increasing sin and unrelenting wrath. Does this sound hopeless so far? Well, let's turn the corner. Let's turn the corner. Even Isaiah, he gives this great message of hope um, throughout, kind of woven throughout the, the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, for instance, Isaiah 7.14 says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So someday down the road, it was going to be about 700 years later, a virgin was going to have a baby whose name means God with us. And then Isaiah 9, 6, To us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his righteousness and of his government there shall be no end. So then from Isaiah we learn that there's this king coming who's going to be very righteous, who's going to lead the people into righteousness, away from sin and wickedness. And then further on in Isaiah, in chapter 53, we learn that this righteous, great king is also going to be a suffering servant. And we see this. For he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put upon him. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Somebody was going to come and take our sin away onto himself. What great hope that is. And I want us to turn to Romans 5.20 where we see another picture, another scripture about increasing sin. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, where sin increased, God's wrath was unrelenting? Question mark? Not according to this passage. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's grace, God's favor, how could that be if in the face of increasing sin that there could be this amazing, awesome favor of God? How could that be? That, that seems to go so much against what Isaiah is saying. And we know the truth to this, don't we? We know that that cup of wrath that the nations are to drink, that there's a way to not have to drink that. Because we remember that Jesus, when he was on earth, he came, and the night before he was crucified, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and wrestling with his own soul, with what's about to come up ahead of him. And, and he prays this way. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What cup is Jesus talking about? The cup of God's wrath against sin. And Jesus went ahead yielded to the will of his Father because he loves us, loves his Father. He went and he drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, which means every last drop, which means 
For all who place their hope in Christ, there's not one drop left of wrath for us at all. And that's why we can have God's favor on us instead. Not because of who we are and what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We have an awesome Savior. So how do we as people respond to this? Well, one, if you haven't done so yet, place your faith and hope in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Trust that that's what he came to do, to drink that cup so we would not have to drink it someday. Everybody who places their faith in him will be spared that. Second, repent. Don't linger around the door of sin. Run the other way. Run as far as you can. Don't even linger because sin is so deceptive and our hearts are so deceptive and deceitful that we can just get sucked into it. And we don't want to be like the buzzard going over the waterfall. Third thing, have a heart for lost people because we as Christians know the outcome of what happens when people do not know Christ. So let's have a heart for the lost and seek to rescue them. Next, have a heart for those who think they're Christians and claim to be, but maybe they're pursuing a known sin. Maybe they're the ones on the ice flow. Have a heart and, and go get them. Go rescue them. Not in a harsh way, but as people who've been rescued ourselves. Um, there's an urgency to it. There's a fervency to it. There's a gentleness to it. But let's, let's love our Let's love those who claim to be among us, who claim to be our brothers and sisters who maybe are pursuing a known sin. Next, we really should be the most forgiving and gracious people on the entire planet as Christians because we have received this amazing grace. We don't have to drink that cup. Jesus drank it on our behalf and we're certainly deserving of having to drink it, but by God's grace, we don't have to. And because we've received this amazing, gracious forgiveness from the great God, perfect, holy God of the universe, when a fellow mortal, a fellow human being sins against us, we should be the most gracious, forgiving people ever. And finally, rejoice. Rejoice that this is our God, this is who he is, this is a message of scripture that we can be rescued, that, that we can belong to God forever. And as we belong to God, our lives begin more and more to declare his glory. And that's what it's all about. To glorify God, to enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word together. And Lord, even though it's so discouraging to see increasing sin, to see sin all around us, to see the sin and struggle in our own hearts, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that, that we don't have to pay for that sin ourselves, that he has already taken care of it, and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you're redeeming us more and more to be like Jesus, to, to say no to sin more and more. And give us a great love for people, a great love for others, to love them even as you have loved us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.